Chapter Four of The Virginian. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Virginian by Owen Wister. Chapter Four. Deep into Cattle Land. Morning had been for some while a stir in Medicine Bow before I left my quilts. The new day and its doings began around me in the store, chiefly at the grocery counter. Dry goods were not in great request. The early rising cowboys were off again to their work, and those to whom their night's holiday had left any dollars were spending these for tobacco or cartridges or canned provisions for the journey to their distant camps. Sardines were called for, and potted chicken, and deviled ham, a sophisticated nourishment at first sight for these sons of the sagebrush. But portable, ready-made food plays of necessity a great part in the opening of a new country. These picnic pots and cans were the first of her trophies that civilization dropped upon Wyoming's virgin soil. The cowboy is now gone to worlds invisible. The wind has blown away the white ashes of his campfires, but the empty sardine box lies rusting over the face of the western earth. So through my eyes half closed, I watched the sale of these tins and grew familiar with the ham's inevitable trademark, that label with the devil in his horns and hoofs and tail very pronounced, all colored a sultry, prodigious scarlet. And when each horseman had made his purchase, he would trail his spurs over the floor, and presently the sound of his horse's hoofs would be the last of him. Through my dozing attention came various fragments of talk, and sometimes useful bits of knowledge. For instance, I learned the true value of tomatoes in this country. One fellow was buying two cans of them. "'Meadow Creek dry already?' commented the proprietor. "'Been dry ten days,' the young cowboy informed him. And it appeared that along the road he was going, water would not be reached much before sundown, because this Meadow Creek had ceased to run. His tomatoes were for drink, and thus they have refreshed me many times since." "'No beer?' suggested the proprietor. The boy made a shuddering face. "'Don't say its name to me!' he exclaimed. "'I couldn't hold my breakfast down.' He rang his silver money upon the counter. "'I've swore off for three months,' he stated. "'I'm going to be as pure as the snow.' And away he went, jingling out of the door, to ride seventy-five miles. Three more months of hard, unsheltered work, and he would ride into town again, with his adolescent blood crying aloud for its own. "'I'm obliged,' said a new voice, rousing me from a new doze. "'She's easier this morning, since the medicine.' This was the engineer, whose sick wife had brought a hush over Medicine Bow's rioting. "'I'll give her them flowers soon as she wakes,' he added. "'Flowers?' repeated the proprietor. "'You didn't leave that bunch at our door?' "'Wish I'd thought to do it.' "'She likes to see flowers,' said the engineer. And he walked out slowly, with his thanks unachieved. He returned at once with the Virginian, for in the band of the Virginian's hat were two or three blossoms. "'It don't need mentioning,' the Southerner was saying, embarrassed by any expression of thanks. "'If we had knowed last night—' "'You didn't disturb her any,' broke in the engineer. "'She's easier this morning. I'll tell her about them flowers.' "'Why, it don't need mentioning. 
The Virginian again protested, almost crossly. The little things looked kind of fresh, and I just picked them. His eye now fell upon me where I lay upon the counter. I reckon breakfast will be getting through, he remarked. I was soon at the wash trough. It was only half-past six, but many had been before me. One glance at the roller towel told me that. I was afraid to ask the landlady for a clean one, and so I found a fresh handkerchief and accomplished a sparing toilet. In the midst of this the drummers joined me, one by one, and they used the degraded towel without hesitation. In a way they had the best of me. Filth was nothing to them. The latest risers in Medicine Bow, we sat at breakfast together, and they essayed some light familiarities with the landlady. But these experiments were failures. Her eyes did not see, nor did her ears hear them. She brought the coffee and the bacon, with a sedateness that propriety itself could scarce have surpassed. Yet impropriety lurked noiselessly all over her. You could not have specified how. It was interblended with her sum total. Silence was her apparent habit and her weapon. But the American drummer found that she could speak to the point when need came for this. During the meal he had praised her golden hair. It was golden, indeed, and worth a high compliment. But his kind displeased her. She had let it pass, however, with no more than a cool stare. But on taking his leave, when he came to pay for the meal, he pushed it too far. "'Pity this must be our last,' he said, and as it brought no answer. "'Ever travel?' he inquired. "'Where I go there's room for a pair of us.' "'Then you'd better find another jackass,' she replied quietly. I was glad that I had not asked for a clean towel. From the commercial travelers I now separated myself, and wandered alone in pleasurable aimlessness. It was seven o'clock. Medicine Bow stood voiceless and unpeopled. The cowboys had melted away. The inhabitants were indoors, pursuing the business or the idleness of the forenoon. Visible motion there was none. No shell upon the dry sands could lie more lifeless than Medicine Bow. Looking in at the store, I saw the proprietor sitting with his pipe extinct. Looking in at the saloon, I saw the dealer dealing dumbly to himself. Up in the sky there was not a cloud nor a bird, and on the earth the lightest straw lay becalmed. Once I saw the Virginian at an open door, where the golden-haired landlady stood talking with him. Sometimes I strolled in the town, and sometimes out on the plain I lay down with my daydreams in the sagebrush. Pale herds of antelope were in the distance, and nearby the demure prairie dogs sat up and scrutinized me. Steve, Trampas, the riot of horsemen, my lost trunk, Uncle Huey with his abortive brides, all things merged in my thoughts in a huge, delicious indifference. It was like swimming slowly at random in an ocean that was smooth and neither too cool nor too warm. And before I knew it, five lazy, imperceptible hours had gone thus. There was the Union Pacific train, coming as if from shores forgotten. Its approach was silent and long drawn out. I easily reached town and the platform before it had finished watering at the tank. It moved up, made a short halt, 
I saw my trunk come out of it, and then it moved away silently as it had come, smoking and dwindling into distance unknown. Beside my trunk was one other, tied extravagantly with white ribbon. The fluttering bows caught my attention, and now I suddenly saw a perfectly new sight. The Virginian was further down the platform, doubled up with laughing. It was good to know that with sufficient cause he could laugh like this. A smile had thus far been his limit of external mirth. Rice now flew against my hat, and hissing gusts of rice spouted on the platform. All the men left in Medicine Bow appeared like magic, and more rice choked the atmosphere. Through the general clamor a cracked voice said, "'Don't hit her in the eye, boys!' and Uncle Huey rushed proudly by me with an actual wife on his arm. She could easily have been his granddaughter. They got at once into a vehicle, the trunk was lifted in behind, and amid cheers, rice, shoes, and broad felicitations the pair drove out of town, Uncle Huey shrieking to the horses, and the bride waving unabashed adieus. The word had come over the wires from Laramie. Uncle Huey has made it this time. Expect him on today's number two. And Medicine Bow had expected him. Many words arose on the departure of the new married couple. Who's she? What's he got for her? Got a gold mine up Bear Creek. And after comment and prophecy, Medicine Bow returned to its dinner. This meal was my last here for a long while. The Virginian's responsibility now returned. Duty drove the judge's trustworthy man to take care of me again. He had not once sought my society of his own accord. His distaste for what he supposed me to be, I don't exactly know what this was, remained unshaken. I have thought that matters of dress and speech should not carry with them so much mistrust in our democracy. Thieves are presumed innocent until proved guilty, but a starched collar is condemned at once. Perfect civility and obligingness I certainly did receive from the Virginian, only not a word of fellowship. He harnessed the horses, got my trunk, and gave me some advice about taking provisions for our journey something more palatable than what food we should find along the road. It was well thought of, and I bought quite a parcel of dainties, feeling that he would despise both them and me, and thus I took my seat beside him, wondering what we should manage to talk about for two hundred and sixty-three miles. Farewell in those days was not said in Cattle-land. Acquaintances watched our departure with a nod or with nothing, and the nearest approach to good-bye was the proprietor's so long. But I caught sight of one farewell given without words. As we drove by the eating-house, the shade of a side-window was raised, and the landlady looked her last upon the Virginian. Her lips were faintly parted, and no woman's eyes ever said more plainly, I am one of your possessions. She had forgotten that it might be seen. Her glance caught mine, and she backed into the dimness of the room. What look she may have received from him, if he gave her any at this too public moment, I could not tell. His eyes seemed to be upon the horses, 
and he drove with the same mastering ease that had roped the wild pony yesterday. We passed the ramparts of Medicine Bow, thick heaps and fringes of tin cans, and shelving mounds of bottles cast out of the saloons. The sun struck these at a hundred glittering points, and in a moment we were in the clean plains, with the prairie dogs and the pale herds of antelope. The great still air bathed us, pure as water and strong as wine. The sunlight flooded the world, and shining upon the breast of the Virginian's flannel shirt lay a long gold thread of hair. The noisy American drummer had met defeat, but this silent free lance had been easily victorious. It must have been five miles that we traveled in silence, losing and seeing the horizon among the ceaseless waves of the earth. Then I looked back, and there was Medicine Bow, seemingly a stone's throw behind us. It was a full half-hour before I looked back again, and there, sure enough, was always Medicine Bow. A size or two smaller, I will admit, but visible in every feature, like something seen through the wrong end of a field-glass. The eastbound express was approaching the town, and I noticed the white steam from its whistle, but when the sound reached us the train had almost stopped, and in reply to my comment upon this the Virginian deigned to remark that it was more so in Arizona. A man come to Arizona, he said, with one of them telescopes to study the heavenly bodies. He was a Yankee, sir, and a right smart one, too and one night we was watchin' for some little old fallen stars that he said was due, and I saw some lights movin' along across the mesa pretty lively, and I sang out. But he told me it was just the train, and I told him I didn't know you could see the kiars that plain from his place. You can see em, he said to me, but it is last night's kiars you're lookin' at. At this point the Virginian spoke severely to one of the horses, of course, he then resumed to me, that Yankee man did not mean quite all he said. You, Buck, he again broke off suddenly to the horse. But Arizona, sir, he continued, it certainly has a most deceiving atmosphere. Another man told me he had seen a lady close one eye at him when he was two minutes hard run from her. This time the Virginian gave Buck the whip. "'What effect,' I inquired, with a gravity equal to his own, "'does this extraordinary foreshortening have upon a quart of whiskey?' "'When it's outside you, sir, no distance looks too far to go to it.' He glanced at me with an eye that held more confidence than hitherto he had been able to feel in me. I had made one step in his approval. But I had many yet to go.' This day he preferred his own thoughts to my conversation, and so he did all the days of this first journey, while I should have greatly preferred his conversation to my thoughts. He dismissed some attempts that I made upon the subject of Uncle Huey, so that I had not the courage to touch upon Trampas, and that chill brief collision which might have struck the spark of death. Trampas! I had forgotten him till this silent drive I was beginning. I wondered if I should ever see him, or Steve, or any of those people again. And this wonder I expressed aloud. 
"'There's no tellin' in this country,' said the Virginian. "'Folks come easy, and they go easy. "'In settled places, like back in the States, "'even a poor man mostly has a home. "'Don't care if it's only a barrel on a lot. "'The fellow'll keep frequentin' that lot, "'and if you want him, you can find him. "'But out here in the sagebrush, "'a man's home is apt to be his saddle-blanket.' First thing you know, he has moved it to Texas. "'You have done some moving yourself,' I suggested. But this word closed his mouth. "'I have had a look at the country,' he said, and we were silent again. Let me, however, tell you here that he had set out for a look at the country at the age of fourteen, and that by his present age of twenty-four, he had seen Arkansas, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. Everywhere he had taken care of himself and survived, nor had his strong heart yet waked up to any hunger for a home. Let me also tell you that he was one of thousands drifting and living thus, but, as you shall learn, one in a thousand. Medicine Bow did not forever remain in sight. When next I thought of it, and looked behind, nothing was there but the road we had come. It lay like a ship's wake across the huge ground-swell of the earth. We were swallowed in a vast solitude. A little while before sunset a cabin came in view, and here we passed our first night. Two young men lived here, tending their cattle. They were fond of animals. By the stable a chained coyote rushed nervously in a circle, or sat on its haunches and snapped at gifts of food ungraciously. A tame young elk walked in and out of the cabin door, and during supper it tried to push me off my chair. A half-tame mountain sheep practiced jumping from the ground to the roof. The cabin was papered with posters of a circus, and skins of bear and silver fox lay upon the floor. Until nine o'clock one man talked to the Virginian, and one played gaily upon a concertina, and then we all went to bed. The air was like December, but in my blankets and a buffalo robe I kept warm, and luxuriated in the Rocky Mountain silence. Going to wash before breakfast at sunrise I found needles of ice in a pail. Yet it was hard to remember that this quiet, open, splendid wilderness with not a peak in sight just here, was six thousand feet high. And when breakfast was over, there was no December left, and by the time the Virginian and I were ten miles upon our way, it was June. But always every breath that I breathed was pure as water and strong as wine. We never passed a human being this day. Some wild cattle rushed up to us and away from us, Antelopes stared at us from a hundred yards, coyotes ran skulking through the sagebrush to watch us from a hill, at our noon meal we killed a rattlesnake and shot some young sage chickens, which were good at supper, roasted at our campfire. By half-past eight we were asleep beneath the stars, and by half-past four I was drinking coffee and shivering. The horse, Buck, was hard to catch this second morning. Whether some hills that we were now in had excited him, or whether the better water up here had caused an effervescence in his spirits, I cannot say. 
but I was as hot as July by the time we had him safe in harness, or rather unsafe in harness, for Buck, in the mysterious language of horses, now taught wickedness to his side-partner, and about eleven o'clock they laid their evil heads together and decided to break our necks. We were passing, I have said, through a range of demi-mountains. It was a little country where trees grew, water ran, and the plains were shut out for a while. The road had steep places in it, and places here and there where you could fall off and go bounding to the bottom among stones. But Buck, for some reason, did not think these opportunities good enough for him. He selected a more theatrical moment. We emerged from a narrow canyon suddenly upon five hundred cattle and some cowboys branding calves by a fire in a corral. It was a sight that Buck knew by heart. He instantly treated it like an appalling phenomenon. I saw him kick seven ways. I saw Muggins kick five ways. Our furious motion snapped my spine like a whip. I grasped the seat. Something gave a forlorn jingle. It was the brake. "'Don't jump,' commanded the trustworthy man. "'No,' I said, as my hat flew off. Help was too far away to do anything for us. We passed scathless through a part of the cattle. I saw their horns and backs go by. Some earth crumbled, and we plunged downward into water rocking among stones, and upward again through some more crumbling earth. I heard a crash and saw my trunk landing in the stream.' "'She's safer there,' said the trustworthy man. "'True,' I said. "'We'll go back for,' said he, with his eyes on the horses and his foot on the crippled brake. A dry gully was coming, and no room to turn. The farther side of it was terraced with rock. We should simply fall backward if we did not fall forward first. He steered the horses straight over, and just at the bottom swung them with astonishing skill to the right along the hard-baked mud. They took us along the bed up to the head of the gully, and through a thicket of quaking asps. The light trees bent beneath our charge, and bastinadoed the wagon as it went over them. But their branches enmeshed the horse's legs, and we came to a harmless standstill among a bower of leaves. I looked at the trustworthy man and smiled vaguely. He considered me for a moment. "'I reckon,' said he, "'you're feelin' about halfway between, "'Oh, Lord, and thank God.' "'That's quite it,' said I, as he got down on the ground. "'Nothing's broke,' said he, after a searching examination, "'and he indulged in a true Virginian expletive.' "'Gentlemen, hush!' he murmured gently, looking at me with his grave eyes. "'One time I got pretty near scared. "'You, Buck,' he continued, "'some folks would beat you now till you'd be uncertain whether you was a hoss or a railroad accident. "'I'd do it myself, only it wouldn't cure you.' "'I now told him that I supposed he had saved both our lives. "'But he detested words of direct praise.' He made some grumbling rejoinder, and led the horses out of the thicket. Buck, he explained to me, was a good horse, and so was Muggins. Both of them generally meant well, and that was the judge's reason for sending them to meet me. 
But these broncos had their off days. Off days might not come very often, but when the humor seized a bronco, he had to have his spree. Buck would now behave himself as a horse should for probably two months. They are just like humans, the Virginian concluded. Several cowboys arrived on a gallop to find how many pieces of us were left. We returned down the hill, and when we reached my trunk, it was surprising to see the distance that our runaway had covered. My hat was also found, and we continued on our way. Buck and Muggins were patterns of discretion through the rest of the mountains. I thought when we camped this night that it was strange Buck should be again allowed to graze at large, instead of being tied to a rope while we slept. But this was my ignorance. With the hard work that he was gallantly doing, the horse needed more pasture than a rope's length would permit him to find. Therefore he went free, and in the morning gave us but little trouble in catching him. We crossed a river in the forenoon, and far to the north of us we saw the Bowleg Mountains, pale in the bright sun. Sunk Creek flowed from their western side, and our two hundred and sixty-three miles began to grow a small thing in my eyes. Buck and Muggins, I think, knew perfectly that tomorrow would see them home. They recognized this region, and once they turned off at a fork in the road. The Virginian pulled them back rather sharply. "'Want to go back to Balaam's?' he inquired of them. "'I thought you had more sense.' I asked, who was Balaam? A maltreater of hosses, replied the cowpuncher. His ranch is on Butte Creek over yanda, and he pointed to where the diverging road melted into space. The judge bought Buck and Muggins from him in the spring. So he maltreats horses, I repeated. That's the word all through this country. A man that will do what they claim Balaam does to a hoss when he's mad ain't fit to be called human. The Virginian told me some particulars. Oh! I almost screamed at the horror of it, and again, oh! He'd have probably done that to Buck as soon as he stopped running away. If I caught a man doing that... We were interrupted by a sedate-looking traveler riding upon an equally sober horse. "'Mawnin, Taylor,' said the Virginian, pulling up for gossip. "'Ain't you strayed off your range pretty far?' "'You're a nice one,' replied Mr. Taylor, stopping his horse and smiling amiably. "'Tell me something I don't know,' retorted the Virginian. "'Hold up a man at cards and rob him,' pursued Mr. Taylor. "'Oh, the news has got ahead of you.' "'Trampas has been here explaining, has he?' said the Virginian, with a grin." "'Was that your victim's name?' said Mr. Taylor, facetiously. "'No, it wasn't him that brought the news. Say, what did you do, anyway?' "'So that thing has got around,' murmured the Virginian. "'Well, it wasn't worth such wide repawtin'. And he gave the simple facts to Taylor, while I sat wondering at the contagious powers of rumor. Here, through this voiceless land, this desert, this vacuum, it had spread like a change of weather. "'Any news up your way?' the Virginian concluded. Importance came into Mr. Taylor's countenance. "'Bear Creek is going to build a schoolhouse,' said he. "'Goodness gracious,' drawled the Virginian. "'What's that for?' 
Now Mr. Taylor had been married for some years. "'To educate the offspring of Bear Creek,' he answered with pride. "'Offspring of Bear Creek,' the Virginian meditatively repeated. "'I don't remember noticing much offspring. There was some white-tailed deer, and a right smart of jackrabbits.' "'The Swintons have moved up from Drybone,' said Mr. Taylor, always seriously. "'They found it no place for young children. "'And there's Uncle Carmody with six, and Ben Dow, "'and Westfall has become a family man, and—' "'Jim Westfall?' exclaimed the Virginian. "'Him a family man? "'Well, if this here territory is going to get full of family men "'and empty a game, I believe I'll—' "'Get married yourself?' suggested Mr. Taylor.' Me? I ain't near reached the marriageable age, no, sir. But Uncle Huey has got there at last, you know. Uncle Huey! shouted Mr. Taylor. He had not heard this. Rumor is very capricious. Therefore the Virginian told him, and the family man rocked in his saddle. Build your schoolhouse, said the Virginian. Uncle Huey has qualified himself to subscribe to all such propositions. Got your eye on a school marm? End of chapter four. Chapter five of The Virginian. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Virginian by Owen Wister. Chapter five. Enter the woman. We are taking steps, said Mr. Taylor. Bear Creek ain't going to be hasty about a schoolmarm. Sure, assented the Virginian. The children wouldn't want you to hurry. But Mr. Taylor was, as I have indicated, a serious family man. The problem of educating his children could appear to him in no light except a sober one. Bear Creek, he said, don't want the experience they had over at Calef. We must not hire an ignoramus. "'Sure,' assented the Virginian again. "'Nor we don't want no gadaway flirt,' said Mr. Taylor. "'She must keep her eyes on the blackboard,' said the Virginian gently. "'Well, we can wait till we get a guaranteed article,' said Mr. Taylor. "'And that's what we're going to do. "'It can't be this year, and it needn't to be. "'None of the kids is very old, and the schoolhouse has got to be built.' He now drew a letter from his pocket and looked at me. "'Are you acquainted with Miss Mary Stark Wood of Bennington, Vermont?' he inquired. "'I was not acquainted with her at this time. "'She's one we are thinking of. "'She's a correspondent with Mrs. Balaam.' "'Taylor handed me the letter. "'She wrote that to Mrs. Balaam, "'and Mrs. Balaam said the best thing was for to let me see it and judge for myself. "'I'm taking it back to Mrs. Balaam.' Maybe you can give me your opinion how it sizes up with the letters they write back east? The communication was mainly of a business kind, but also personal and freely written. I do not think that its writer expected it to be exhibited as a document. The writer wished very much that she could see the West, but she could not gratify this desire merely for pleasure, or she would long ago have accepted the kind invitation to visit Mrs. Balaam's ranch. Teaching school was something she would like to do if she were fitted for it. "'Since the mills failed,' the writer said, "'we have all gone to work and done a lot of things so that Mother might keep on living in the old house. 
Yes, the salary would be a temptation. But, my dear, isn't Wyoming bad for the complexion? And could I sue them if mine got damaged? It is still admired. I could bring one male witness, at least, to prove that. Then the writer became businesslike again. Even if she came to feel that she could leave home, she did not at all know that she could teach school. Nor did she think it right to accept a position in which one had had no experience. "'I do love children, boys especially,' she went on. "'My small nephew and I get on famously. But imagine if a whole benchful of boys began asking me questions that I couldn't answer. What should I do? For one could not spank them all, you know.' and mother says that I ought not to teach anybody spelling, because I leave the U out of honor. Altogether it was a letter which I could assure Mr. Taylor sized up very well with the letters written in my part of the United States, and it was signed, Your Very Sincere Spinster, Molly Stark Wood. "'I never seen honor spelled with a U,' said Mr. Taylor over whose not highly civilized head certain portions of the letter had lightly passed. I told him that some old-fashioned people still wrote the word so. "'Either way would satisfy Bear Creek,' said Mr. Taylor, "'if she's otherwise up to requirements.' The Virginian was now looking over the letter musingly, and with awakened attention. "'Your very sincere spinster,' he read aloud slowly, "'I guess that means she's forty, said Taylor. "'I reckon she is about twenty, said the Virginian, and again he fell to musing over the paper that he held. "'Her handwriting ain't like any I've saw,' pursued Mr. Taylor. "'But Bear Creek would not object to that, provided she knows arithmetic and George Washington and them kind of things.' "'I expect she is not an awful sincere spinster.' surmised the Virginian, still looking at the letter, still holding it as if it were some token. Has any botanist set down what the seed of love is? Has it anywhere been set down in how many ways this seed may be sown? In what various vessels of gossamer it can float across wide spaces? Or upon what different soils it can fall, and live unknown, and bide its time for blooming? The Virginian handed back to Taylor the sheet of note-paper where a girl had talked as the women he had known did not talk. If his eyes had ever seen such maidens, there had been no meeting of eyes, and if such maidens had ever spoken to him, the speech was from an established distance. But here was a free language, altogether new to him. It proved, however, not alien to his understanding, as it was alien to Mr. Taylor's. We drove onward, a mile perhaps, and then two. He had lately been full of words, but now he barely answered me, so that a silence fell upon both of us. It must have been all of ten miles that we had driven when he spoke of his own accord. "'Your real spinster don't speak of her lot that easy,' he remarked, and presently he quoted a phrase about the complexion. "'Could I sue them if mine got damaged?' and he smiled over this to himself, shaking his head. "'What would she be doing on Bear Creek?' he next said, and finally, "'I reckon that witness will detain her in Vermont, and her mother'll keep living at the old house.' Thus did the cowpuncher deliver himself, 
not knowing at all that the seed had floated across wide spaces, and was biding its time in his heart. On the morrow we reached Sunk Creek. Judge Henry's welcome and his wife's would have obliterated any hardships that I had endured, and I had endured none at all. For a while I saw little of the Virginian. He lapsed into his native way of addressing me occasionally as Sir, a habit entirely repudiated by this land of equality. I was sorry. Our common peril during the runaway of Buck and Muggins had brought us to a familiarity that I hoped was destined to last. But I think that it would not have gone farther, save for a certain personage—I must call her a personage—and, as I am indebted to her for gaining me a friend whose prejudice against me might never have been otherwise overcome, I shall tell you her little story, and how her misadventures and her fate came to bring the Virginian and me to an appreciation of one another. Without her, it is likely I should also not have heard so much of the story of the school-marm, and how that lady at last came to Bear Creek. End of chapter 5